Psalm 110 is quoted more times than any other psalm in the New Testament. And every verse tells us about who Christ is, what he came to accomplish, and what he will do. Martin Luther called this the main psalm to deal with our Lord Jesus Christ. And he backed it up by writing a 120-page commentary on it. So many times we hear things that the world says or everyone has an opinion about everything. And many times we take what the world says or what our tradition says about who Jesus is. But we should take what the Bible says about who Jesus is. And where the Bible speaks often, we should listen. So we should look at the whole counsel of God on who Jesus is. This passage, for instance, is mentioned in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in Acts, many times in Hebrews, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Peter, Revelation. This one psalm, these seven versions, versions are mentioned over and over. I want to start in Matthew 22. How does Jesus himself refer to this psalm? talking about himself. So if you would, turn to Matthew 22 for me. We're going to read verses 41 through 45. Matthew 22, verse 41. Jesus just finished telling them what the great commandment was. In verse 41, the Pharisees say, Now while the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, Who do you think, or what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Well, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. For from that day, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions? This is how Jesus taught himself to his disciples, to the Pharisees. We wonder what the gospel was like. What did preaching look like in the New Testament, in the early church, before the gospels were written, before Paul's letters were written? They gathered and they preached the Psalms. Jesus, after rising from the grave, walks along the disciples in the road to Emmaus, and declares himself through all of the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. All of scripture declares Christ. When Christ taught, he taught himself from the Old Testament. When Peter preached, he preached Christ in the Old Testament. When Stephen stood before those who were going to stone him, he preached Christ in the Old Testament. When Paul witnessed to who he was, he preached Christ in the Old Testament. And they all refer to the Psalm over and over and over again. Now, because we see Christ incarnate, the baby in a manger, we like to think that he started there. And many churches, sadly, they keep him in the manger. But Jesus didn't just come on the scene in Matthew from day one. Colossians tells us he created all things. And all of the Old Testament is declaring him. So I want you to think about it this way. Um, Scientific principles, right? The principles we know that govern the earth around us. God put these scientific laws in place. The law of gravity. To make sure we're not floating away as as we walk. Um, The transference of of energy. We know that energy continues from one form to another. An object in motion stays in motion. An object at rest stays at rest. Photosynthesis. 
all these things you learn about in a, in a middle school or high school biology class, all these processes exist when you were a baby. All these processes exist when you were five, even though you didn't understand them. And so the scriptures are the same way. Christ has always been on his throne. He's been reigning. The scriptures declared of him before they knew who he really was. Just like these scientific principles keep us, keep our feet firmly planted, planted on the ground, keep the oxygen in the air so we can breathe, even if we don't understand them. God is working around us. God is in control of all things, even if our eyes have not been opened yet. But in the New Testament, Jesus incarnate in his, in his ministry, the Holy Spirit opens eyes. And so we can understand things that have always been at place. And this is the teaching of this psalm. It has always been true. It was written probably 1,500 years before Christ was born. And it was as true then as it is today, even though it was not clear to everyone who read it. Because it had some direct implications to them. I mean, this could have been some generic uh, coronation song that would have been sung for a new king. But no king in the history of Israel ever fulfilled each one of these offices the way they're spoken about here. And no king of Israel has ever spoken about it, about sitting at God's right hand. Um, I love, so I was reading this week, Steve Lawson in his commentary on the Psalms tells this great story of um, an English theologian in the 19th century has an audience with the queen. Queen Victoria is commenting to, uh, its name is Frederick Farrer, uh, about one of the messages she heard. Her, her chaplain was teaching on the second coming of Christ. And so she comments to him and says, Oh dear Far, how I wish that the Lord would come during my lifetime. So he's curious and he asks, Why? Why do you say that? Queen Victoria replies, Because I would love to lay my crown at his blessed feet in reverent adoration. That is how we ought to approach the feet of the king. The kings of this earth, the queens of this earth, laid down their crowns before him. So as we get into verse 1, verse 1 is a message in itself. If you see in your outlines, there are three parts to verse 1. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who I quote a lot and is so helpful in the Psalms, he wrote a ten-volume set on, on the Psalms. Um, he says that all of our gospel is summarized in verse 1. It's kind of a bold statement. We're going to see three things about Christ here and see how it gives us our well-shaped gospel just in verse 1. The first thing I want you to see in verse 1 is this is the basis for kingship. The first three words tell us the basis for kingship. The Lord says. Whenever we see this in Scripture, the King James is great. Thus saith the Lord. Whenever you hear, thus saith the Lord, you pay attention. Because every prophet who prophesied before the people of God said, thus saith the Lord. And followed by, thus saith the Lord, is always a first person command from the Lord. So what do we see in verse 1? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Three statements here. The first of them being the introductory sentence. Lord to Lord. Most of your, your Bibles, to make this distinction, you'll see that Lord is written two different ways. Uh, one, the first Lord here is all caps. The second Lord 
is capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Now, there's a, there's a distinction between these two words used for God. The first one, all caps, is Yahweh. Deuteronomy 28 calls it the glorious and awesome name of God. It's the personal name of God that he gave to his people. It's used 5,300 times in the Old Testament to refer to God. The most of any by far. But Yahweh was so revered and so holy to God's people that they wouldn't even speak it out loud. So whenever you see the Lord in all caps, it is Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they shuddered at his name. So that is clearly God. But in the second one is the Lord speaking to Adonai, uh, which also means Lord. It's what they call the majestic plural of the general word for Lord. Lord is Adon. Adonai is the plural. It means the Lord, the Lord above all lords. So this is Yahweh saying to Adonai, sit at my right hand. Okay, so what does all that mean? Thomas sums it up for us in in, uh, John 20 after he sees the scars in Jesus' hands and he says, my Lord and my God. We are actually getting a peek into the throne room of God. God the Father speaking to God the Son at the right hand. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I mean, think about that for a moment. This is David. We don't know if he saw it if it was pressed upon his heart, but David is declaring this divine conversation. The Trinity is on full display in line one of verse one. The Lord says to my Lord. David's not talking about some other king. David's the king of Israel. David's God's anointed king. He's not going to call some other God or some other king Lord. David would only say Lord to someone who is over him. And in God's people, the only person over David would have been God himself. So God speaks to God saying, sit at my right hand. Now, the Israelites were looking all throughout the Old Testament for a king in the house of David. But David looked at the king on the heavenly throne. Number two, sit at my right hand. This is a theologically loaded statement. Seems easy. Sit, have a seat. But when you take a seat, it means that something is complete, that you are that you are resting. If you've ever seen paintings or you've ever seen movies of these great kings throughout history, they're sitting on their throne. They are resting. There is no one threatening them. The king doesn't get up unless someone has either threatened him or there's something to do. And so when he says, sit at my right hand, the right seat, whoever sat to the right of the king, that was the position of power. The queen sat to the left. The prince, the general, the executor, whoever was under the power of that king would sit to his right hand. Whoever king entrusted his kingdom to would sit at his right hand. When Joseph sat beside Pharaoh, he sat at Pharaoh's right hand. But God is saying someone is sitting at my right hand. I am sharing my throne. And you can, you can believe that God is not sharing his throne with any mere man. Like we said last week, there's a seat of power. That throne is secure. Our God reigns. So what does that mean for us? Jesus is sitting. When a king sits, 
He's unconcerned. But he knows a day will come when he will return. So for us, we should also be unconcerned, anticipating the fullness of time. So what do we do when people ask us, especially today? Well, where was your God when this happened? Where was your God when my father got cancer? Where was your God when my son was sick? Where was your God? Same place he always was, sitting on the throne. Same place he will be until he comes again, sitting on the throne. It doesn't seem like it's a satisfactory answer, does it? But we have this temptation. We feel like we need to give a perfect answer to every question everyone asks. So where was your God? Well, I, I don't really know, but the Bible tells me it's not up to us to answer all the questions to the world's problems. But we can declare what the cure is to the problems and where that cure is seated. Because it's not up to us to solve the problems of the world. But we can give a clear answer. Our God reigns. So let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you what the scriptures say about my God, Christ on his throne, who will one day make all things new. Until, part three of verse one, until I make your enemies your footstool. So we see this transition. You're sitting until a time when your enemies will be your footstool, when you will crush them under your feet. There's a lot here in this uh, statement as well. So who, who are the enemies? We see all the way back to Genesis 3, where the serpent rebels against God, wants man to follow in his rebellion, and gets Adam and Eve to sin along with him. When you align yourself with the serpent, you become an enemy of God. And in Genesis 3.15, a seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The, and the serpent and all of his enemies along with him become enemies of God and will be crushed under his feet. Now, many times we hear that all are sons of God and all are children of God. We don't see that in Scripture. All the way back to Psalm 1 and 2, what did we talk about? That there are the righteous and there are the wicked, and the wicked rage against God's anointed. That's the theme for all of the Psalms. The enemies of God will rage against him until the day that he's under, that they're under his feet. And why a footstool? What does that even mean? I want to show you, hopefully you can get the, the uh, visual here, right? A footstool, hopefully this thing will support me. I don't think it will. Uh, I'm not going to stand up. A footstool is not for standing. This is not the posture of a king. It's the posture of Captain Morgan, right? <laughs> um, a king, when he's resting, would put his feet up on a footstool and the nations would come before him. I will put your enemies under your feet as a footstool. There is no concern here. This is the son sitting at the right hand of the father with his enemies under his feet. This is not a throne that's in jeopardy. This is not a war that is up for grabs between the principalities of Satan and the armies of God. This is a God whose enemies are under his feet like a footstool, like nothing. We must remember too that in the Great Commission, Jesus said that all authority has been given to him. 
And that is why we can be confident in our gospel proclamation. Because our king is sitting. And one day when he comes against his enemies, he'll be sitting again with them under his feet. So that sets up verse 2 for us. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So the scepter, we've seen these. The king holds them in his hand. Uh, it could be synonymous with, with, with rod. Um, and this is actually synonymous with Psalm 33. Your rod and your staff. We all know the uh, phrase that doesn't seem to make sense in Psalm 23. When he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Psalm 23 makes sense for me, or to me, it always made sense except for that line until I read this passage. That God is so secure in the reign of his anointed king that he's not concerned with the enemies. No king on earth would ever say that. No king on earth would ever want a table with his enemies surrounding them. Our God is not concerned. He prepares a table in the midst of my enemies. His enemies surrounded him around the cross. And when he comes again, his enemies are going to surround him. But his table is sure. His reign is sure. His scepter is not leaving his hand in the midst of his enemies. I mean, think about it. He's surrounded by his enemies, but he's still king. He still reigns, still seated, still unconcerned. Now, there's a parallel passage I want you to see. If you turn... Um, to Revelation 19, we're going to get there in just a moment. But verse 3 builds on verse 1 and 2. So because of the authority given to the king in verse 1, and his promised reign in verse 2, his people will voluntarily enlist at the coming of his power. What do we see in verse 3? Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. All right, before we get to Revelation, I want to address a couple things in uh, verse 3 here. I have to admit the scholars and the Hebrew experts are kind of confused about this, this, this verse. They don't really know what the Hebrew idioms mean. Um, and I read several different opinions on this verse. Um, but after prayer and approach to this, let me tell you what I think this verse means, and it's very powerful. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely. You know, this is a voluntary en enlistment. These are not compulsory armies in, in heaven. These are people giving themselves to the cause of their king. And in just a moment, we're going to see in Revelation 19 that they will be in holy garments on the day of the power, the day of wrath, judgment, They'll be in holy garments, pure linen. The armies of heaven will come behind their king. Now, this was the interesting part to me here. This last section, it says, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. What does that mean? Um, when we think of womb, what do, we, what do we think of? Come on, you can say it out loud. Birth, there you go. It's not a hard question. No, it's birth. Womb means womb. Um, and what does the Bible use morning as? Um, the morning is always something new. Your mercies are new every morning. You wake up, it's a new day, new blessings, something new. So we see here a new birth. We see here the womb of the morning. 
and the dew of your youth, so your young people, your people, your enlistment will be yours. Okay, the dew of the morning. Most of us have been up early enough to see dew, and we don't get it for very long in Florida because it evaporates in about three seconds. Um, but the dew of the morning is beautiful, right? The light sparkles off of it. Um, it's, it's bright. It's untainted. The water is pure. You can drink the water off of the leaves in the morning. It is pure. So what this is saying here is that if people offer themselves freely, pure before you in white garments, born anew, glistening like dew in the morning, your army will be perfect because you have made them perfect. Now let's see this in Revelation 19. We're going to start in verse 11. I'm going to read to verse 16. Hopefully I give you plenty of time to turn there because I want you to see this. This is one of the clearest descriptions we get of Jesus' second coming. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Psalm 110 is fleshed out in Revelation 19. That is our king. That is our God. That is our triumphant Lord. Um, That Lord doesn't always make us comfortable and warm and fuzzy inside. We're going to address that in a moment because verses 5 through 7 tell us exactly what's going to happen when he comes back, which we saw in Revelation 19. But I want to set... The stage for that, because the Jesus isn't always the coloring book, um, hippie Jesus that we've grown so accustomed to. So let's uh, let's continue. So what do we say in verse one that was the basis for kingship? The Lord says verse four gives us the basis for the priesthood. The Lord says the Lord has sworn verse four back in Psalm 110. And will not change his mind that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, there's an entire sermon in this this verse. The Lord says, Thus saith the Lord, and then another first person declaration. And he will not repent. There's no turning with God. He He swears according to himself, and he will not repent. He will not turn from it. The decrees of the sovereign Lord are perfect. Spurgeon, again, commenting on this, said, this is the center and soul of our faith. Get this. Do not miss this. If you get one thing today, get this clearly, that Christ must be our priest and our king. Now, the way I wrote this outline, um, I was very intentional from the title to the sections. 
Shri alluded to it earlier, that there are three offices in the kingdom of Israel. God spoke and reigned over his people in three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus fulfilled all of them perfectly. Now, from the very um, dawn of the priesthood and kingship, they were inextricably linked. The king led the people. The priest offered sacrifice for the people. And the prophet proclaimed the word of God. But those offices must come together. And here's why. Because the only way that perfect rule over wicked people and a perfect redemption could take place over wicked people was that it had to be accomplished by men. We saw this earlier in, in, in the catechism, that the sins of man must be answered by man. But it could only be perfected by God. Now, who fits that? Christ. Only Christ can rule perfectly. Only Christ could keep the law perfectly. Only Christ could offer the perfect sacrifice for sins. Zechariah even prophesied in chapter 6 of, of his book of the merging of the priesthood and the kingship. I want to tell you something also. Um, there's a reason why we no longer call this an altar. When you come before the communion table in the Catholic Church, it's called an altar. This is a whole other conversation, but it's because you have to provide a sacrifice to God because it isn't finished. In altars where the priest made sacrifice before God. In altars where blood must be shed. When Christ merged the kingship and the priesthood, he made one sacrifice for all sins, perfectly for all time. We have no more need for an altar. We have no more need for a sacrifice because Christ is our sacrifice. Let me kind of put this in, in visual terms for you. Um, a lot of you know from probably Sunday school or you know, reading through the account of the, of the Israelites before coming into the land of Canaan. And as the temple was set up, there was the holies and the, whole, the holy place and the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was said to be the dwelling place of God. And the high priest, the best that Israel had to offer, had to cleanse themselves and only go in once a year. Otherwise, they would be killed. So we have the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God. The high priest going in to make a sacrifice once a year, every year, for the sins of God's people. What Jesus did is he took the dwelling place of God himself and the high priest himself and merged the two. The Holy of Holies and the high priest meet once and for all together. That is the fulfillment of all scripture and all of our gospel. Our priest is our king, and our king is our priest and is our God. So who is Melchizedek? <laughs> Why is this guy with this crazy name that you couldn't, that you couldn't spell with you know, 10 tries? I've seen it all week, so I know how to spell it now. Um, but who is he? You know, I had this conversation with Rick last week. Who's this Melchizedek guy? I said, Rick, I'm going to tell you in two weeks. <laughs> Um, so Melchizedek, the name means the king of righteousness. And the old, he's the only one in the history of Israel who is priest and king over Israel. In Genesis 14, he's called the king of Salem. Salem is the precursor name to Jerusalem. And he's the only person who Abraham offered tithes to. 
So before the priesthood was set up through Aaron, through the Levites, Abraham gave a tithe. Abraham, the archetype patriarch, meaning the big, big father guy of, 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 of Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam, paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek, he was the righteous of, of God. And as a unique office, and no one else hold, held until Christ. Because after Melchizedek, the priesthood was separate from the kingship. Just like in, in, in our country, we have this, this balance of, of, of power. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know that, but it, it's, it's based on these Old Testament principles of we have the, we, we have with Congress, we have the Supreme Court, and, and the President. We have this, you know, divided power because no one person should have all control over God's people. So we, that pattern was taken out of the Old Testament. But when Christ comes, he fulfills it according to the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, not fallen priests who could only offer sacrifices once a year, but a perfect priesthood merged with a perfect kingship. So how is this explained? Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 7 for me. Uh, because Hebrews chapter 7 explains this better than I ever could. We're going to read a long section here, um, but it's so important. I mean, this is foundational to who we are. Because if your God is your king and your, your priest, whom then shall I fear? I think many people fear and many people have a weak Christ and a weak God because he's either king, he, he might be priest, but he's definitely not both. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 15. I'm going to actually read through to the end of the chapter because uh, this is amazing how this is laid out for us. And I bet most of us did not grow up learning this, um, may still not understand it, and may need a week or two to process it after reading it. So Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of the indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who were formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Here's where it hits home. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of an oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I wish, I wish I could spend another 20 minutes just on, on, on that passage. Hopefully you got the sense of that. The grandness of who Christ is. This is not a little Christ. It's not a little Christ who sits on your dashboard or a bumper sticker on the back of your car. This is the king who became priest, who offered one sacrifice for all sins for all times, who's perfected his people perfectly, forever. He is a priest forever because of the cross. Wait a second, how do we get to the cross? What does the cross have to do with all this? Because before the cross, the priests of Israel had to offer sacrifices continually for sin. On the cross, Christ took sins, the sins of those who will trust and believe in him, repent of their sins and turn to him. He took them on the cross once and forever done. That is why we don't have an altar, because our king became our altar for our sacrifices and bore our blood with his blood. That is our gospel, and that is not a small gospel. That is not a weak Christ. So now we have this picture of who this Christ is, perfect priest, perfect king. What do the prophecies tell us? Verse 5. This is where it gets a little sticky. Some of us start to squirm in our seats, right? The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Now, similar language was used um, in kingly coronations of those days. When they would put a king on a throne, pagan or Israelite, um, they would say things like, your enemies will bow before you and be crushed under your feet. Or may your conquest be great and may those who hate you fall before you. Those were things that were said in common. So this was not new to them. The Israelites would have understand, would have understood this kind of language. I mean, even went a step further, they even carved into the legs of their, their thrones depictions of their enemies being killed and bowing before them. There were graphic pictures carved into thrones. And so kings would sit on these thrones. You know, so this is reigning language. I mean, this is not soft stuff. So as we usually see, the prophets use terms that, that people are used to to look forward uh, to things that are to come. And so we see there in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. The same right hand that we talked about in verse 1. The same seat of authority and judgment that we talked about last week. And those same enemies we talked about in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they are going to be shattered. The kings of this world, the systems of this world, the corrupt politicians, the wicked nations, they will be crushed before the king of kings. There's no middle ground. You are either enlisted with him in pure garments of white linen, or you are crushed beneath his feet. Then we get to the fun part. <laughs> Verse 6. Verses we do not want to hear attached to our Savior. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Ouch. Those who oppose, those are perishing. They're described in battlefield imagery. It's not soft stuff. But we also, we can't ignore what we don't like in God's word. And because we don't like it, I'm going to lean in a little harder. 
Because some of us, I've been there, and we've all been there at some point, where we have this little cute Jesus that we've put in a box and put up on a shelf, and we don't want him to hurt anybody, and his wrath is just something that um, they talked about in the medieval times and doesn't apply to us anymore. This is no different when Jesus, excuse me, when God was sending his people into the promised land, his concern was for his people. And he wiped out the Canaanites. He wiped out the wicked of the earth, the pagans who offended him. Jesus didn't shy away from this either. When Jesus talked about his second coming, he used two illustrations. We're very familiar with them because uh, they use agricultural terms, but it's the same thing. He talked about the wheat in the tares or the wheat in the weeds. When you grow a crop, the wheats will grow and the weeds grow with them. Jesus said, don't cut the wheat, the, excuse me, the weeds yet because you don't want to damage the wheat. But one day when the harvest comes, the wheat will be separated from the weeds and the weeds will be burned. Jesus, again, in Matthew 25, talks about the sheep and the goats. The sheep are his, called to his right hand, the goats to the left. He will separate those who do his will and those who are his enemies. And John didn't shy away from it either. In the book of Revelation, we see Jesus coming. I mean, this is, he's coming with a sword. He's in a robe dipped in blood. I mean, this is, this, this is tough stuff. This is not Sunday school stuff. This is not the stuff we want to teach our kids. We only want the nice Jesus to be taught to our kids. You know, but let's be honest. That sweet, weak, weak hippie Jesus that we've created for ourselves, is that the Jesus of the Bible or is that the Jesus who we'd rather have? You know, or does the idea of him coming and laying waste to his enemies make us uncomfortable? But it's real. I mean, it's what God's word says over and over and over again. And it makes our gospel more real. Because God's word is our authority for who Jesus is and what he's done. You know, because if we set aside part of the scriptures we don't like, where do we stop? If we set aside the gospel that makes us uncomfortable, we might as well toss out everything. And only stick with what makes us comfortable. Karma makes us comfortable. I do good, good things are done to me. You do me bad, bad things are going to be done to you. That's what the rest of the world says. It's not our gospel. Let me ask you a question, though. If there's no day of wrath to come, what exactly is our gospel saving us for? What do we need a savior from? If there's no day of wrath. If he's not coming, what is he going to put those who hate him in timeout, set him in the corner, take their video games away? Our gospel is good news because the bad news is bad news. We have to be very, 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 very careful not to interpret Scripture based on our feelings. Let me repeat that. We have to be very careful not to interpret Scripture based on our feelings. Remember a long, long time ago, feels like years, I talked about the lenses with which we approach Scripture. There are two options. Either Scripture is the lens by which you see the world, or your world is the lens by which you see Scripture. What lenses are you using? Are you seeing the world with Jesus-colored glasses? Or are you seeing Jesus with world-colored glasses? And what is your lens for who God is and who Christ is? God's holy word or your holy feelings? 
I am not. <laughs> I am not innocent in this. I have fallen prey to this so many times. I want God to be who I want him to be when I want him to be it. But as I go back to scripture, I'm convicted over and over and over again of who he is. So I told you guys, I'm going to teach you a word every week. I'm going to teach you a word that you may never use again in your life. Um, and another word you can't spell. But I want you to get this clear, that our feelings are not a hermeneutic. Hermeneutic. H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C. Simple word that means interpretation. There's a whole field of study in theology called hermeneutics. How do we interpret scripture? Our feelings are not are, are hermeneutic. We can't put what I want God to be or what I want salvation to be above of what the Bible says it is. Because every heresy in Christian cult throughout history is based on someone's feelings about who Jesus should be. Well, I don't like the God that punishes sin, so I'll put man's choice in his own hands, and I don't like this God, and I don't like the God who's, I can't understand a God in, in, in three persons, so he's just separate. Uh, Jesus is a man, he's not God. All these things, I don't feel good about them, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something different than what God's word says. Every one of those her heresies have been put down. But what gospel has saved you? Have you trusted in the Lord who will one day judge the living and the dead and put his enemies under his feet? Because he's a lamb, but he's also a lion. So what do we see in this last verse? After the judgment is done, after the body's been Said under his feet, what does he say in verse 7? The triumph of the priest king. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This beautiful picture of this conquering king who bends down to drink from living water. Because his job is complete. He lifts up his head in his regal stance, saying, it is finished. The Lord has done it. Now, if you are in Christ, that is great news. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Our Lord has done it. If you are his enemy, it is not good news. That's why the gospel is urgent. That's why our message is urgent. So how do we conclude this morning? What, do we, what have we seen in the Psalms so far? In the Psalms, we've seen from the very first chapter that there are the righteous and the wicked and they're warring against one another because ultimately they war against God's anointed. Christ is the object of the wrath of man. But one day they will be under his feet. The Christ who is in Psalm 22 is on the cross taking the humiliation and the punishment of man and God for the sins of man. Psalm 96, we saw that Christ is reigning forever. His throne is unshakable. Psalm 110 we see that the prophet, the priest, and the king are perfected in him. Christ the king reigns, Lord of all. Christ the priest is the minister of salvation for all who trust in him. Christ the prophet is the very word that declares it to be so. Every prophecy about Christ was prophesied to him, about him, and fulfilled by him. Perfecting prophet, priest, and king. So Israel no longer had to trust in prophet, priest, and king. They have one. One perfect 
sovereign Lord. No king or ruler is permanent except one. No priest or sacrifice is forever except one. No purpose is climaxed in the American dream like sadly you'll hear in a lot of pulpits and a lot of churches. But God's purpose is climaxed in the everlasting kingdom of the God King, the King of Kings, the Son of David, the Son of God. So, either we bow before Jesus Christ as Lord of all and submit our lives and will to him and trust that he is our high priest who atones for our sins or we are are his enemy. If you are in Christ, rejoice. Our king is our priest and our God and no one can separate you from his love. Amen. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we don't normally do this, but I want you to do this this morning. I'm going to take a few moments in silence and just reflect on this. Search your, your heart. If you do not know him, come before God. Cry out to God. And I would love, love to talk to you afterward. Let's bow. Let's take a few moments in silence and... I will close us in prayer. My Lord and my God, I'm going to spend a few moments being honest. This week, I wrestle with a passage. It's not an easy one to preach. But I want to be the herald that I spoke of last week that proclaims the truth of my victorious king. I don't want to tickle ears. That's not popular. So Lord, if this message this morning, the truth of your scripture, laid out in front of us, clearly to be declared, is convicting us, is challenging us. If someone here this morning is just wrestling with this truth and, if, and has never accepted who you are, that they would repent of their sins, that they would turn to you, that you would restore to them, make them new, make them clothed in white linen, pure as dew in the morning before you. And those of us who know you, who love you, and who struggle with the truth of who you are, only want you to be a partial Lord, impartial king, impartial priest, impartially come back one day, that we will love you fully, that we will embrace all of who you are, that we will celebrate that you are the conquering victorious king, and we will reign one day with you. Because until we have that, our gospel is weak, our Christ is weak, and our witness is incomplete. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.